Jacksonville, Florida, April 29, 1917. My dear sir, I take great pleasure in writing you. As I found in your Chicago Defender this morning, where you are securing jobs for men, as I really didn't know if you can get a good job for me, as I am a woman and a widow with two girls, and would like to know if you can get one for me and the girls. We will do any kind of work, and I would like to hear from you at once. Not any of us has any husbands. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. This is the second episode of a three-part series discussing the Great Migration, during which millions of African Americans left the South for a better life. The series includes several letters written by prospective migrants to the Chicago Defender newspaper, the Chicago Urban League, religious associations, and other contacts. They were eventually compiled in the Journal of Negro History, and all of the names have been redacted from those letters. I've also included commentary from witnesses to the migration, and in the next episode, I will read a letter with permission from the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. The N-word is used in many letters, and I've inserted a tone in those places. As we discussed in the first episode, during two massive waves between 1916 and 1917, the African-American population shifted from being almost entirely in the South, or at about 90%, to being only half in the South. This series focuses on the first two years of the migration. During this period, the state of Alabama lost at least 90,000 African-American citizens. 50,000 moved from Georgia and 49,000 from Virginia. North Carolina and Mississippi each lost 35,000 black Americans between 1916 and 1917. Except for Oklahoma, from which about 6,000 African Americans migrated, all southern states experienced five-figure losses of black citizens during this period. Prior to 1916, there were plenty of reasons for African Americans to want to leave the former Confederate states. During Reconstruction, which ended in 1877, blacks had been able to achieve some political, social, and economic advances. But within a few decades of emancipation, new forms of slavery, sharecropping, peonage, and convict leasing had emerged. Separate but equal was not, and black men were kept from their constitutional right to vote by poll taxes, literacy tests, and violence. Bitterly disappointed with the outcome of Reconstruction, many blacks hoped that the promise of freedom might be fulfilled in Kansas. In the late 1870s, a few successful colonies were established in the state due to the leadership of businessman and activist Benjamin Papp Singleton, a formerly enslaved man who had escaped to the North before emancipation and returned to the South after the war. Then, between March and May 1879, Thousands of black Americans, mostly from Louisiana and Mississippi, attempted to, attempted to make the same new start for themselves in Kansas. They were known as the Exodusters, a reference to the second book of the Old Testament, which tells of the Israelites' escape from slavery in Egypt. But members of the second wave 
found themselves ill-prepared for Kansas and the current residents ill-prepared to receive them. Some migrants to Kansas did achieve some success, but two-thirds of the exodusters eventually went back to the South. But World War I changed everything. On June 28, 1914, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife were assassinated in Sarajevo. Before long, as nations joined their allies on each side of the fight, much of Europe was embroiled in what was called the War to End All Wars. The United States would not join the fighting until 1917, but the effects on immigration were immediate. In the decade prior to the war, the country received an average of one million immigrants per year. There had been no limit on the number of immigrants, though there were restrictions on nation of origin. Chinese immigrants had been banned in 1882, and immigration from Japan was stopped by an informal agreement in 1907. That million-per-year number fell to 300,000 in 1915. Ellis Island arrivals decreased by 90% and another 21% in 1916. On top of that, there was an increased demand due to the war for arms and other war supplies. The unemployment rate declined from 9.7 in 1915 to 4.8 in 1916. Railroads and steel mills were the first companies to hire large numbers of black workers from the South to address this labor demand. They offered free transportation to the workers and promised high wages. In the summer of 1916, the Pennsylvania Railroad hired more than 16,000 African Americans into unskilled jobs. Journalist Ray Stannard Baker reported, quote, Trains were backed into southern cities, and hundreds of Negroes were gathered up in a day, loaded into the cars, and whirled away to the north. Instances were given showing Negro teamsters that left their horses standing in the streets or deserted their jobs and went to the trains without notifying their employers or even going home. The United States joined the Allied forces on April 6, 1917, and the next month, the Selective Service Act required able-bodied men between 21 and 31 to register for duty. As men were deployed overseas, the demand for labor increased even more. To satisfy this demand, northern employers started sending agents to southern states to recruit black workers. Agents were paid 2 to $3 per migrant and placed a premium on healthy young men. Migrants who went with the agents had to sign certifications of health and could be dismissed from their jobs for misrepresenting themselves. Sometimes, agents bound migrants to low-wage contracts for a specified period before they left for their new northern home. The contracts had to be completed before the migrants could look for new, higher-paying jobs elsewhere. Agents who gave free transportation were called pass riders. In cities and towns where agents were able to move freely, they might stand on street corners handing out train tickets to young men as incentives to move north. In other places, they had to be more guarded in their efforts, walking on a crowded street saying, Anyone want to go to Chicago? See me to passers-by in a low tone. Employers also gave transportation advances and deducted the fares from future wages. Without agents or transportation advances, the journey north was very expensive. These figures from 1918 give us an idea of the cost. 
fare from New Orleans to Chicago for a family of six was $135. From Norfolk to Pittsburgh, it was $73 for a family that size. The average pay was $1 to $2 per day, sometimes much less, and recall from the first episode that agricultural workers often did not receive any cash for their work. Many of the letters that prospective migrants wrote asked for information about agents or how to get passes for the journey, like the next few. Corinth, Mississippi, April 30, 1917. Dear Sir, I'm a good cook, age 35 years. I can bring my recommendation with me. My name is Redacted. I am in good health, so I would like for you to send me transportation. I have got a daughter and baby six months old, so she can nurse. So I would like to come up there and get a job of some kind. I can wait table, cook, house girl, nurse, or do any work. I am ready to come just as soon as you send the passes to us. I want to bring a box of quilts and a trunk of clothes, so you please send us the passes for me and daughter. Write me at once. I am a Negro woman. We will leave here Saturday if you send the passes. If you are not the man, please give me some information to whom to write to. A Negro Friend Brookhaven, Mississippi, April 24, 1917 Gents, the cane growers of Louisiana have stopped the exodus from New Orleans claiming shortage of labor, which will result in a sugar famine. Now these laborers thus employed receive only 85 cents a day, and the high cost of living makes it a serious question to live. There is a great many race people around here who desire to come north, but have waited rather late to avoid car fare, which they have not got. Isn't there some way to get the concerns who want labor to send passes here or elsewhere so they can come? even if they have to pay out of the first month's wages? Please don't publish this letter, but do what you can towards helping them to get away. If the railroad company would run a low-rate excursion, they could leave that way. Please answer. Pensacola, Florida, April 29, 1917. Dear Sir, I was looking over the Chicago Defender, and I saw where you were wanting men to work, and the meantime was advancing transportation. If it is so, I would thank you kindly if you will aid me with the transportation that I may come and get some of those jobs. I am a painter by trade, but I will and can do any kind of work. I am a sober and hard-working man. My weight is 179 pounds, height 6 feet 2 inches. I see where you can use some molders. I am not a molder, but I am a molder's son. I can do that work until the molder comes. Very skillful at any kind of work. Hoping to hear from you soon for more results. Many commentaries on the migration state that the role of the labor agents was actually brief, limited, and often exaggerated. But there is consensus that the Chicago Defender newspaper, founded in 1905, was instrumental in inspiring the movement. It was the largest selling black newspaper in the United States by World War I, and two-thirds of circulation was outside of Chicago. According to its publisher, Robert Abbott, sales reached 150,000 copies per issue during the Great Migration. People could buy them at major centers of socialization and discussion, such as churches and barbershops. After the initial purchase, 
copies would be passed around until they fell apart. Even blacks who could not read felt pride in owning a copy of this prominent publication and advocate for civil rights. But at the start of the migration, when the railroads first started hiring large numbers of African Americans, the Defender was more of an impartial observer of the movement. It initially argued in its editorials that conditions for Southern blacks could be improved by agricultural diversification. Last time, I talked about how vulnerable the South's dependence on cotton had made blacks to the boll weevil epidemic. The Defender argued that, rather than limit themselves to cotton, African Americans, who owned about 15% of Southern farmland, should grow other crops to meet the demand of war-torn Europe. The paper also called for protest and for federal intervention on behalf of Southern blacks. As late as August 1916, the paper was merely reporting on the migration. By the following month, its support was full-throated. The Defender started to portray a northern Mecca where blacks could enjoy prosperity, respect, and the good life. In October, it proclaimed that, quote, every black man, for the sake of his wife and daughters especially, should leave, even at a financial sacrifice, every spot in the South where his worth is not appreciated enough to give him the standing of a man and a citizen. The Defender's pages showed moderately prosperous black Chicago citizens, black elected officials, and black YMCA basketball teams competing against white teams. Prospective migrants could read about The Stroll, a strip from 26th to 39th Streets, where they could go from one night spot to the next and supposedly be treated politely by white businessmen. Pekin and Palace Garden offered jazz, bright lights, and racially mixed crowds. Black Chicago boasted seven movie theaters, and residents could reportedly enjoy beaches along Lake Michigan, which were open to all by law, if not in fact. I also talked about the disparities in educational opportunities for Southern Blacks. The Defender highlighted these disparities by printing pictures of the stately Robert Lindblom High School next to a one-room shack school from the South. Even though Blacks could not easily attend the Lindblom School, which was in a predominantly white neighborhood. The Defender also published stories about lynchings and other atrocities and contained news and commentary that Southern papers would not. On September 2nd, the front page featured a photo of men and women crowding a railroad track with the caption, Tired of being kicked and cursed, they are leaving by the thousands, as the above picture shows. The issue also contained the first advertisement inviting Southern laborers to Northern businesses. Wanted, men for laborers and semi-skilled occupations. Address or reply to the Employment Department. Westinghouse Electric Company, East Pittsburgh. As employers turned to the Chicago Urban League for help recruiting, they learned about the Defender and placed more ads. Firms and agencies from not only Chicago, but the states of Wisconsin, Nebraska, Ohio, and Minnesota placed one ads as well. Eventually, readers began writing to employers and the Urban League for information. The League received thousands of letters from, from prospective migrants who often mentioned the Defender in their inquiries. People also wrote directly to the publisher, Robert Abbott, who passed along the letters to the social agencies. And they wrote to the Defender, many assuming that the paper was acting as an employment agent or providing transportation. 
Here are just two examples. New Orleans, Louisiana, April 24, 1917. Dear Sirs, Being desirous of leaving the South for the betterment of my condition generally, and seeking a home elsewhere in Illinois, Chicago, or some other prosperous town, I am at sea about the best place to locate, having a family dependent on me for support. I am informed by the Chicago Defender, a very valuable paper which has for its purpose the uplifting of my race, and of which I am a constant reader and real lover, that you are in position to show some light to one in my condition, seeking a northern home. If this is true, kindly inform me by next mail the next best thing to do, being a poor man with a family to care for. I am not coming to live on flowery beds of ease, for I am a man who works and wishes to make the best I can out of life. I do not wish to come there hoodwinked, not knowing where to go or what to do. So I solicit your help in this matter, and thanking you in advance for what advice you may be pleased to give. I am yours for success. P.S. I am presently employed in the Illinois Central Railroad Mail Department at Union Station, this city. Miami, Florida, May 14, 1917. Dear Sir, Some time ago, down this side, it was a rumor about the great work going on in the North. But at the present time, everything is quiet there, people saying that all we have been hearing was false, until I caught hold of the Chicago Defender. I see where its more positions are still open. Now I am very anxious to get up there. I follow up cooking. I was also a stevedore. I used to have from 150 to 200 men under my charge. They thought I was capable in doing the work, and at the meantime I am willing to do anything. I have a wife, and she is a very good cook. She has lots of references from the North and South. Now, dear sir, if you can send me a ticket so I can come up there, and after I get straightened out, I will send for my wife. You will oblige me by doing so at as early a date as possible. The newspaper started promoting a great northern drive and encouraged readers to depart for the north on that day. There was not an actual organized drive, but especially large numbers arrived in Chicago the week after May 15. The promotion led to rumors that there would be free passage to the north on that day. The next letter asks for confirmation of these rumors. Mobile, Alabama, April 25, 1917. Sir, I was reading in that paper about the colored race, and while reading it, I have seen in it where cars would be here for the 15th of May, which is one month from today. Will you be so kind as to let me know where they are coming to, and I will be glad to know, because I am a poor woman and have a husband and five children, living, and three dead, one single and two twin girls, six months old today, and my husband can hardly make bread for them in Mobile. This is my native home, but it is not fit to live in, just as the Chicago Defender says. It says the truth. And my husband only gets a dollar fifty a day and pays seven fifty a month for house rent and can hardly feed me and himself and children. I'm the mother of eight children, 25 years old, and I want to get out of this dog hole because I don't know what I'm raising them up for in this place. And I want to get to Chicago, where I know they will be raised, and my husband is crazy to get there, because he knows he can get more to raise his children. And will you please let me know where the cars are going to stop so that he can come where he can take care of me and my children? 
He gets there a while, and then he can send for me. I heard they weren't coming here, so I sent to find out, and he can go and meet them at the place they are going, and go from there to Chicago. No more at present, hoping to hear from you soon, from your needed and worried friend. Eventually, the defender had to state that there were, quote, no special trains scheduled to leave Southern stations on May 15th, and that this date has been selected simply because it was a good time to leave for the North so as to become acclimated. Given the contempt with which blacks were treated in the South, Southern whites might have been happy to see them go. In 1916, the Telegraph expressed support for the sending of 100,000 blacks into Mexico to conquer the, quote, mongrel breed, and at the same time rid the South of that many worthless Negroes. As it turned out, it was the war overseas that would help rid the South of Negroes, and whites were not as happy about it as the Telegraph expected they would be. Though not considered equal to whites, deserving of the right to vote, or to use the same facilities, blacks were valuable as during slavery, and vital to the Southern economy and society as a whole. When they left, their absence was felt. Journalist Emmett Scott wrote the following in his report on the migration, a report that President Woodrow Wilson had commissioned to determine the migration's causes. Quote, Homes found themselves without servants. Factories could not operate because of the lack of labor. Farmers were unable to secure laborers to harvest their crops. Streets in towns and cities, once crowded, assumed the aspect of deserted thoroughfares. Houses in congested districts became empty. Churches, lodges, and societies suffered such a large loss of membership that they had to close up or undergo reorganization. As increasing numbers of African Americans left the South, whites responded with a mix of alarm, regret, and outrage, as reflected in the following two letters. Sauk, Georgia, May 1, 1917. Dear Sir, There are about 15 or 20 of us hard-working men seeking employment, and we would be more than glad if you assist us in finding work. I see here in the Chicago Defender, laborers wanted. I am a skilled laborer at most anything except molder, but I am winning, willing to learn the trade. We are hard-working men, no loafers, neither crapshooters. Work is what we want and cannot get it without your assistance. If you will assist us with transportation, please write and let us know what way to come to you. These white folks here are having meetings trying to stop us from going off to seek work and knowing they haven't got work nor wages for us here. We have had jobs but lose it and have not got the money to get away. If you accept my letter, please give us some assistance to leave because I sent you a letter Monday but I see afterwards that it was sent wrong, so I sent you this one. Have you got employment up there for females? If so, let us know. Please, if you send me a special, please don't put 15 or 20 men, and I will understand. If you say 15 or 20 men, they will put me in jail. Please answer just as soon as you can, as I want to get away as soon as I can. There is nothing here to do. Some industrious females want employment. Please answer at once. Lutcher, Louisiana, May 13, 1917. Dear Sir, I have been reading the Chicago Defender and seeing so many advertisements about the work in the North. 
I thought to write you concerning my condition. I am working hard in the South and can hardly earn a living. I have a wife and one child and can hardly feed them. I thought to write and ask you for some information concerning how to get a pass for myself and family. I don't want to leave my family behind, as I can't hardly make a living for them right here with them. And I know they would fare hard if I would leave them. If there are any agents in the South, there haven't been any of them to Lutcher. If they would come here, they would get at least fifty men. Please, sir, let me hear from you as quick as possible. Now this is all. Please don't publish my letter. I was out in town today talking to some of the men, and they say if they could get passes that thirty or forty of them would come. But they haven't got the money, and they don't know how to come. But they are good, strong, and able working men. If you will instruct me, I will instruct the other men how to come, as they all want to work. Please don't publish this, because we have to whisper this around among ourselves, because the white folks are angry now, because the Negroes are going north. Responding to this anger, a black minister wrote to the Montgomery Advocate in October 1916, quote, Why should the South raise such objections to the jobless man seeking the manless job? especially when it has held that jobless man up to the ridicule of the world as trifling, shiftless, and such a burden to the South. Now the opportunity has come to the Negro to relieve the South of some of its burden and at the same time advance his own interests. A great hue and cry is started that it must not be allowed, and the usual and foolish method of repressive legislation is brought into play. But object they did. The same Macon Telegraph that proposed shipping blacks to Mexico to kill two birds with one stone, printed an editorial with a very different tone. This is a long quote that I'm about to read, but I'm reading so much of it because it shows at least one white person acknowledging the unfair treatment of blacks by police, and also the economic crisis presented by the migration, and the paternalistic attitude that whites had towards their Negroes. The Crisis Magazine, of whom W.E.B. Du Bois was the founding editor, called the Telegraph the funniest newspaper in the South next to the Charleston News and Courier when writing on the Negro problem, and called it, quote, a wild leading editorial on the Negro emigrant. It reads, quote, Police officers, country or city, all over the state, all over the South, should be bending every effort to apprehend and jail all the labor agents now operating everywhere to take the best of our Negroes north to fill the rapidly widening labor breach there. This invasion of the South for Negroes isn't just a temporary raiding of our labor market, but it is part of a well-thought-out and skillfully executed plan to rifle the entire South of its well-behaved, able-bodied Negro labor. Unskilled labor is at a high premium in the United States just now, a premium that will increase rather than be withdrawn. There are those who say they'll come back quickly enough, but that isn't true. Ellis Island will not clear labor into this country again for at least one full generation, possibly two. We must have the Negro in the South. The black man is fitted by nature, by centuries of living in it contentedly, effectively, and healthily during long summers of semi-tropical and tropical countries. He has been with us so long that our whole industrial, commercial, and agricultural structure has been built on a black foundation. It is the only labor we have, 
It is the best we have. If we lost it, we would go bankrupt. Everybody seems to be asleep about what is going on right under our noses. That is, everybody but those farmers who have wakened up in mornings recently to find every male Negro over 21 on his place gone. To Cleveland, to Pittsburgh, to Chicago, to Indianapolis. Better jobs, better treatment, higher pay. The bait being held out is being swallowed by thousands of them, all about us. And while our very solvency is being sucked out from underneath, we go about our affairs as usual. Our police officers raid pool rooms in Florida for so-called loafing Negroes, bring in 12, keep them in the barracks all night and the next morning, and then find that 10 of them have steady regular jobs, where they are merely to spend an hour in the only indoor recreation they have. Our county officers hear of a disturbance at a Negro resort and bring in 50-odd men, women, boys, and girls to spend the night in the jail, to make bond at 10%, to hire lawyers, to mortgage half of two months' wages, although but a bare dozen of them could have been guilty of the disorderly conduct. It was the week following that several Macon employers found good Negroes, men trained to do their work, secure and respected in their jobs, valuable assets to their white employers, suddenly left and gone to Cleveland, where they don't arrest 50 for what three of them done. Many of these men who left haven't been replaced, except with those it will take years to train to do their work as well as they did it, but at a high cost from the start. Black's vulnerable position in society is what made them such an ideal labor source. Jim Crow reinforced planters and industrialists' ability to set terms of black labor. It was hazardous, and therefore practically impossible to complain or mount collective resistance, such as work stoppages, boycotts, or public demonstrations. That's why, as one businessman put it, no other laborer would be as cheerful or so contented on four pounds of meat and a peck of meal a week in a little log cabin with cracks in it large enough to afford free passage to a large cat. When it came to tenant farming, blacks were better because white tenants, quote, want more advances, and you can't hold them down the way you can a Negro. If you tell a Negro he can't have any more, he will go back to work. But a white will grumble and won't work and will even move out on you. Whites had some legal recourse in the face of dishonest settlement, illegal eviction, or illegal secure of livestock or personal property. But black tenants could be killed for exercising their legal rights. Another employer said, Give me the every time. He will live on less and do more hard work when properly managed than any other race or class of people. Some opponents to the migration took to warning blacks that the promises drawing them north were not real. And there was, in fact, fraud, as the next letter writer describes. Mobile, Alabama, December 4, 1916. Dear Sir, While reading Sunday's Defender, I read where you were coming south looking for labor. I see you want intelligent, industrious men to work in factories, so I thought I would write and get a little information about it. There are a lot of idle men here that are very anxious to come north. Every day they are fooled about and go and see the man. Plenty of men have quit their jobs with the expectation of going, but when they go, the man that is to take them can't be found. 
Last week, there was a preacher giving lectures ongoing. Took up a collection, and when the men got to the depot, he could not be found. So if you will allow me the privilege, I can get you as many men as you need that are hard-working, honest men that will be glad to come. I will send you these names and addresses if you will send for them to come. There is not work here. Everything is so high, what little you make, we have to eat it up. So if what I say to you is agreeable, please answer. As the economic crisis became more apparent, Southern communities actively pursued ways to stop the migration. In Bolivar County, Mississippi, 12 white men and 5 black men formed a committee to address the situation. A subcommittee reported that the causes of the migration included insecurity before the law, unfair treatment at settlement, action of the mobs, inadequate and inadequate schools. This made me laugh a little bit because I can't imagine that they really needed a committee to figure out why people were leaving. The man from the Macon Telegraph certainly understood the reasons. But wages actually did increase in many of the towns most heavily impacted by the migration. The wages for, the, for a common laborer in Thomasville, Georgia, almost doubled. Wages in Valdosta, Brunswick, and Savannah increased by about 50%. In Savannah, common laborers receiving as much as $2 per day saw their pay rise to $3. And at the sugar refinery, the rates for women increased from $0.15 cents to $0.22 cents per hour. One plantation owner reported keeping his tenants happy by visiting the farm every week and, quote, endeavoring to educate his tenants in modes of right living. They all had bank accounts, and he'd bought 28 Ford automobiles to sell on easy terms to his tenants. Eventually, it seems that it was deemed more efficient to use force to keep people from moving. Banks in Birmingham, Alabama, started refusing to, ch to cash checks written by Northerners to finance, quote, Darkie's joyride. In November 1916, police in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, spent days searching for a labor agent who had recruited 200 men and women to work in a Chicago packing house. Since the agent could not be found, on the day the migrants were scheduled to leave, officers went to the train station and blocked access to the ticket booth. The migrants boarded the train anyway, and once the train was moving, the labor agent came out of a hiding place to give them their tickets. That same month in Savannah, Georgia, police arrested 125 people on a train platform, including many who were not migrating. The Jacksonville, Florida Council passed a law requiring agents to pay $1,000 for a license under penalty of a $600 fine and 60 days in jail. And the Macon City Council raised the license fee for labor agents to $25,000, requiring also that such an agent be recommended by 10 local ministers, 10 manufacturers, and 25 businessmen. Railroads were eventually forced to stop giving out free passes, and the Chicago Defender also came under attack. On September 15, 1917, the Athens Daily Banner in Georgia printed the following, quote, Investigation by state and federal officials into the Negro exodus situation has brought to the conclusion that the greatest disturbing element which has yet entered Georgia is the circulation of the Negro newspaper known as the Chicago Defender, 
which has agitated the Negroes to leave the South on the word picture of equality with the whites. The freedom of hotels, theaters, and other places of public amusement on an equal basis with the white people, and equality in citizenship in the North and East. Police confiscated copies of the paper in several cities. One county in Mississippi banned the defender, declaring it German propaganda. This did little to reduce circulation. Pullman porters secretly transported the defender on their rail trips from Chicago to the South. Packages of copies of the paper were disguised to conceal their contents. It was not only Southern whites who expressed opposition to the migration. As I talked about in Episode 1, there were some financially successful African Americans in the South, and not all Southern blacks suffered Jim Crow equally. Some black leaders encouraged their struggling brethren to stay in the South, arguing that they should not abandon the land that blacks had labored in for so many years. In the North, they would have to start from scratch. Before his death in 1915, Booker T. Washington was among those leaders encouraging blacks to stay in the South. Prior to 1915, there were few jobs available in the North, and blacks didn't necessarily have reason to believe that they would fare better there. We only know for certain what Washington said, not what he would have said, once conditions in the North changed so dramatically. But even after the economic benefits of moving became more apparent, some blacks were against it, at least publicly. In September 1916, the Tuskegee Institute, with which Washington founded, held conferences to address the conditions compelling blacks to leave the South. To deal with the boll weevil crisis, tenants should grow fall and winter gardens and plant oats. They could also plant crops such as hay, cowpeas, and sweet potatoes and raise poultry and livestock. There were mines to be worked, cities to be built, and railroads to be extended, they argued, all offering potential opportunity to African Americans. They also pointed out that blacks owned $500 million of property and urged them to stay on the land that they owned. The conference addressed whites as well. As Emmett Scott reported, quote, The conference urged, therefore, that the Southern white people avail themselves of their greatest opportunity to cooperate with the blacks in the various communities and have a thorough understanding as to working for the common welfare of all. The delegates believed that the time had come for the best element of the whites and blacks to unite to protect the interests of both races to the end that more effective work may be done in the upbuilding of a greater South. I'll talk more in the next episode about the jobs that migrants did in the South, but I should note that Tuskegee did send skilled tradesmen to work in the northern factories, so it's not as though they were entirely opposed to blacks migrating. Oscar Adams Sr. was a minister in the AME Zion Church in Alabama and the publisher of the Birmingham Reporter. Incidentally, one of his sons, Oscar Jr., would eventually become the first African-American Alabama Supreme Court justice. The younger son, Frank, became a noted jazz musician. In the same way that the Defender had shown side-by-side -side images of Southern oppression and Northern success, the reporter juxtaposed praise of local employers with reporting of violence against blacks in the North, which did happen. In November 1916, the reporter declared, quote, There was never such a time in the history of coal mining in Alabama 
when relations between miners and operators were more friendly, cordial, and remunerative than just now. The reporter blamed recent race rioting in Michigan on the absence of Jim Crow, saying, quote, The fact that up to now no provision is made for adjusting the relations between the two races works undue hardships on the Southern black man. Alabama is the best place for the Negro. In December 1916, Adams blamed the exodus on the habit of blacks, in his opinion, and Americans in general, to live beyond their means. He told black people to stay and, quote, stand up for yourself. Adams did acknowledge, quote, there is another deep-seated trouble connected with this labor exodus. He said that for the previous 30 years, blacks had been able to, quote, read about civilization, hear about civilization, forever hungering and thirsting for just a little bit of it, and not that which the Southern white man has designated as sufficient. Adams and other black leaders encouraged self-responsibility and expressed confidence that conditions in the South had improved and would continue to improve. Leading employers of black labor sought the assistance of black elites in restraining the migration. In July 1916, the Jacksonville, Florida Chamber of Commerce invited black professionals and businessmen to a conference to discuss the migration, though improving conditions was not on the agenda. Texas lumber operators sponsored at least three black newspapers to, quote, combat the evil influence of radical Negro papers and magazines published in the North. And a black minister in Fordyce, Arkansas, published the Negro Advocate to, quote, keep the colored laborers of the South satisfied with their conditions and, quote, advise against the exodus of neighbors. The paper was supported by employer contributions. Besides questioning whether the North had the best economic opportunity for blacks, some clergy expressed concerns about the moral environment in the North. The editor of the Star of Zion in Charlotte, North Carolina, a publication of the AME Church, wrote, There are some things which the Negro needs far more than his wages or some of the rights for which he contends. He needs conservation of his moral life. In the North, a Negro is brought face-to-face with new problems. Among the many is the problem of adjusting himself to the abundance of freedom into which he comes so suddenly. His new freedom brings him new changes, as well as new opportunities, for among the, th- for among the roses there lies the thorn. While the inducements of the North are very alluring, in the end the Negro problem must be wrought out in the South. Needless to say, Efforts by black and white Southerners failed to staunch the flow of migrants. In the words of one clergyman, Birmingham race leaders can no more keep Negroes here than they can fly to heaven backwards. On the contrary, some migrants believed that God had cursed the South and that boll weevil and flooding were evidence of his hand in the movement. One migrant said, quote, The Negro papers which you subsidize and the Negro leaders whom you pay cannot hold us. Two or three years ago, you promised us schools. You have not given them to us. The only thing you have offered us is an old jail for our children. And so, without labor agents or railroad passes or strong support from Southern Black leaders, they made their way. They just needed a job to make their way to. Marcel, Mississippi, October 4th, 1917. Dear Sir, 
although I am a stranger to you, but I am a man of the so-called colored race, and can give you the very best of reference as to my character and ability by prominent citizens of my community, by both white and colored people that know me. Although I am a native of Ohio, while I am a northern descent, was reared in the state of Mississippi. Now I am a reader of your paper, The Chicago Defender. After reading your writing every week, I am compelled and persuaded to say that I know you are a real man of my color. You have, I know, heard of the Southland, and I need not tell you anything about it. I'm going to ask you a favor, and at the same time, beg you for your kind and best advice. I want to come to Chicago to live. I am a man of a family, wife and one child. I can do just any kind of work in the common line of labor, and I have for the present sufficient means to support us until I can obtain a position. Now, should I come to your town, would you please assist me in getting a position? I am willing to pay whatever you charge. I don't want you to loan me not one cent, but help me find an occupation there in your town. Now, I have a present position that will keep me employed till the 1st of December, 1917. Now, please give me your best advice on this subject. I enclose stamp for reply. Some families sold their possessions or pooled their resources to send one member in the hopes that he could save and send for the rest. The husband of the writer of the next letter had already migrated. New Orleans, Louisiana, May 2, 1917. Dear Sir, Please, sir, will you kindly tell me what is meant by the Great Northern Drive to take place May the 15th on Tuesday? It is a rumor all over town to be ready for the 15th of May to go in the drive. The defender first spoke of the drive on the 10th of February. My husband is in the north already, preparing for our family, but hearing that the excursion will be $6 from here north on the 15th, and having a large family, I could profit by it if it is really true. Do please write me at once, and say is there an excursion to leave the South. Nearly the whole of the South is getting ready for the drive or excursion as it is termed. Please write at once. We are sick to get out of the solid South. Communities also formed migration clubs to take advantage of group railroad rates, which required a minimum of 10 passengers. This helped ease the trauma of separation, the long journey, and resettling in the North. Sometimes, when labor agents gave free passes to the men of a community, their families would form clubs in order to join them. The leader or captain of the club was usually someone with status in the community and had to be trusted with a large sum of money and responsibility for leading the group. Sometimes, he or she would contact friends in the North and make arrangements for the group to be received when they arrived. Many of the letters we've heard so far mentioned having a group of men for whom jobs were sought. The following does the same. Pascagoula, Mississippi, April 8, 1917. Dear Sir, As you have charge of the Urban League, I want to know if the League can locate work for about eight or ten men. We are all middle-aged men and would like to have our fares paid and deducted from our wages. We will work in any small town in Illinois. All of these men are property owners and have large families. We'll leave families till later on. Any good you can do for us will be highly appreciated. P.S. 
Some of these men have trades and are capable of working in railroad shops. As they left, there were stories of farm workers leaving fields half-plowed, drivers and teamsters leaving wagons standing in the street. Railroad section gangs dropped their tools on the spot. And while many migrants likely did make their decisions on the spot, given the care, planning, and cost of migrating and the opposition, it's likely that many did not just decide, but had been waiting for the right time. Selling homes and possessions became increasingly harder as there were fewer blacks left behind to buy them. Sometimes migrants abandoned or sold their property at significant loss. Others locked up their homes and left their keys with neighbors. They went by train, boat, bus, and occasionally car or buggy. Travelers who couldn't afford to make the trip all at once went one or two states over, stopped to earn more money, and then continued. As they crossed the Ohio River, the migrants celebrated by singing, praying, moving to the front, and eating in the dining car, in many cases for the very first time. On the next episode, we'll talk about life for these Americans once they arrived in the North. The letters read in this episode were printed in the Journal of Negro History, which is in the public domain and available at gutenberg.org. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com and check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter, at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening.